he's saying there's this partnership between the church on earth and God, the Father and the Son in heaven, and that we are cooperating with one another, and that the verdict that you pass, that when you say you're out because you won't confess Jesus as Lord, or you're out because you won't repent of sinning against your brother or sister, you've sinned, and you've been told, and warned, and disciplined, and you still won't repent, and you're out. When the church passes that verdict, heaven is passing that verdict. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Study Podcast. I'm Travis Pauly, and here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Wes. Hi, Travis. How are you? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Doing very well. Back here with another podcast again today. Yes. Sounds like we've got a uh, a fun discussion yeah, ahead I of think us it will today. Be a couple different passages to discuss. And to yeah. dive into. So I've got the question here. I'll go okay. ahead and read it. Uh, do you want me to read the... Yeah, There's just, a message you can just read him. the whole thing. Yeah, I, perfect. Yeah, and, and and that might be a good thing to to mention to people too. Sometimes we ask for questions, and if yeah. anybody has any questions that they'd like us to discuss, they can go to radicallychristian.com, and there's a contact page, and they can send us uh, an email, and we would be happy to consider uh, talking about their question. But if anybody has any feedback too that they'd like to to share on the podcast send that too you know if yeah you know as, as long great. as it's nice you know <laughs> <laughs> just kidding even even your negative feedback we'll read it we may not read it on criticism. the air but yes yeah. exactly we get we have plenty of constructive criticism <laughs> we just tend not to read that on the air <laughs> yeah so this one's got this uh, before the question is a little bit of an intro it says hello love your podcasts and blogs they've helped me see some things and understand things that growing up in the church i always had questions about but never heard Good explanations of the text. For example, New Heavens and New Earth, favorite topic around here. Yes, it is. My question is, what does it mean when whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven? I appreciate if you can clarify what Jesus is talking about. God bless you both in the work you do in the service to our King. That's from Scott. Okay, thank you, Scott. Great yeah. question. Great question. So this uh, this phrase, this exact phrase, comes up twice in Matthew's Gospel account. So I think it'll be fun just to discuss these two passages, and then within that context, within the context of that, those passages talk about the phrase itself. But the discussion, I think, will be a little bit broader than just that phrase, because Again, another favorite topic around here is context and how important context is. And so we'll we'll try to talk about the context a little bit and then uh, jump into what did the what does that phrase mean? So we're going to start in Matthew sixteen, uh, starting in verse thirteen. And this is, you know, a very a very well-known passage about Jesus asking his disciples who people say that he is. Uh, he tended to refer to himself as the Son of Man, which itself is a messianic uh, title. Uh, but Jesus tended to not say directly that he was the Messiah. Mm. Uh, when he talked to the woman at the well, uh, she said that the Messiah was coming and he affirmed that he was the Messiah. But very seldom, if ever, did Jesus just come out and directly, explicitly say that he was the Messiah. And I think part of that, this actually could be an interesting side discussion, is words have different meanings, different connotations mm -hmm. um, at, at different times to different people. And what people meant by Messiah had all kinds of different connotations and use throwing that word around could get you killed. Obviously, even without throwing that word around, you could get killed. The word Messiah itself means anointed one. So the Hebrew word is, is what we're transliterating when we say Messiah, and mm -hmm. it means anointed one. The Greek word is Christ, uh, Christos, Christos. Um, and so Christ is 
is the so when we say Jesus Christ, what we're saying is Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus mm-hmm. is the the Hebrew, the Jewish Messiah. Um, so as people are sort of figuring that out, Jesus asks his disciples, uh, this is in Matthew 16, 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, uh, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So apparently they thought that Either these prophets had been reincarnated, had they had come back. Um, Elijah was said to have come, was going to come before the Messiah came. Um, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy that John the Baptist wasn't Elijah. He wasn't a reincarnated Elijah, but he was, uh, he did come in the spirit of Elijah, so to speak. Um, he was Elijah-like in many ways. Um, and so some people are saying, that Jesus is John the Baptist, some are saying that he's Elijah, some are saying that he's Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So you are the Messiah. You are God's anointed one, the son of the living God. Now, I was just thinking about, I wonder what Peter meant by the son of God. Mm. What did he mean by that? Did he mean that Jesus is deity, that Jesus is God incarnate? Maybe. Um, Jesus certainly is. I'm, I am saying that. <laughs> I'm affirming that. And I know Peter would eventually affirm that. Mm-hmm. But was, was Peter saying that right now? It, it's possible uh, that he was, certainly. But it's also possible that he wasn't quite there yet. Um, and I say that because of Psalm 2. You want to read Psalm 2 for us, Travis? Sure. Because I, I think that that sort of sets um, the context for maybe what was Peter saying when he was saying, you are the Messiah. And again, this wasn't something that Jesus went around saying about himself. It's something that Peter had observed the evidence. He had looked at all of the facts, sort of put together all of the puzzle pieces and he, it was beginning to be revealed to him. We'll talk about that in a second. But it was beginning to be revealed to him. And he was starting to realize his eyes were being opened to this truth. His heart was being opened to this truth that Jesus was the long expected and awaited Messiah. So if you would read Psalm 2, because this really helps us to sort of shape our imagination and our thought process to who the Messiah is. Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The king of the earth prepare the kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Okay, so stop right there for just a second. So that that anointed one, that's the Hebrew word that we're transliterating when we say Messiah. So you could translate mm-hmm. that as against Yahweh, the Lord, against Yahweh and against his anointed one, his Messiah. Okay, go ahead. Verse three, let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs, and Lord and the Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the thro- throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Only, okay, so yeah. Yeah, stop, stop there for just a second. So, so there was this sense, there was a sense in which God was the father of David. Mm-hmm. There's a sense in which God was the father of Solomon and all the Davidic kings, that they had that sort of father-son relationship. What, what the New Testament reveals to us is that the father-son relationship between Jesus and the second person of the Godhead, or rather between the father and the second person of the Godhead, uh, Jesus, what the New Testament reveals is that that father-son relationship is eternal, that they have this eternal bond, this eternal connection, this eternal uh, reigning together, sharing glory together, as Jesus puts it. And so that, that sonship, that relationship and connection it it is pre pre incarnate before Jesus becomes a human being and so when we say that Jesus is the son of god we mean something deeper and richer and fuller about 
his relationship to the father than David had to God. But, but that relationship that God had with David and that God would continue to have with the Davidic kings, it could be described as a father-son relationship, mm-hmm. but it was one that merely pointed forward to the relationship that Yahweh, that the father would have with his anointed one, with his anointed king. And so what does Peter mean when he says, you are the Christ, you are the anointed chosen king of God, and you are God's son? It, it's possible that he means you are you are God in the flesh, you are the second person of the Godhead, but it could mean that he's thinking in terms of Psalm 2, that he's thinking you have this special relationship with God. You are God's chosen king, and you are the one who is like David, has this special connection with God as if he's your own father, to the extent this psalm is all about how the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish anointed king, would someday rule the nations, and that it would be futile for the the nations to try to throw off God's rule 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 and reign and that God was going to rule and reign over all the nations through his son. Yeah. Um, and again, if you had read this prior to the first century, you would have thought, oh yeah, yes, the Messiah will be God's son, but you might not have realized that saying God's son also meant himself being both human and deity. So it's hard to know exactly what Peter meant when he confesses this. Maybe it's truer than even he has yet to realize. Yeah, something you made me think of. One of my favorite things in reading about all of human history, um, but particularly in secular history, historical accounts, we go all the way way back to, you know, the Mesopotamians and Mm. and on down even through Rome and, and certainly in medieval Europe. But it's something that humans seems to seem to have intuited long before Christ mm-hmm. and even before the Hebrews made any sort of mark on the world during the Old Testament times that the leader of a people yes. needs to be, they often called their leaders the son of God. Yes, yes, absolutely. And now what ended up happening so much of the time, and certainly in the case of the Egyptians and the Romans mm-hmm. is that eventually the leaders just started taking on the mantle of God. Right. Yes. They, they deified them. Yes. And I think it's so interesting that that's present in the Christian story mm-hmm. all the way back to David, Solomon, as yes. you said, and then on down to Christ, who the interesting distinction is he always talked about, he didn't come to be served, but mm. to be a servant. Yes. But also what I believe Paul says about it, that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Yes, yes. So, Held on to, like, yeah. over my dead body, am I going to give this up? Which even, you know, not only in his behavior, but even in his, as you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, the fact that he wasn't he wasn't quick to claim the mm. title of yes. Son of God. Yeah. He wasn't quick, quick to claim the title of Messiah. Mm-hmm. And that's something... As you mentioned, you know, did Peter, did he know that when he said, did he mm-hmm. kind of know what he was saying? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's easy for me to read that story, and I'm already thinking about the resurrection, mm-hmm. but at this point in Matthew 16, when Peter's saying that, mm-hmm. making that confession, it's like they, they haven't actually seen the fullness yeah. of what Christ Absolutely. was embodying and came to be. Absolutely. So anyway, I think that's so interesting to see that yeah. that pattern is present throughout a lot of human civilizations, mm-hmm. but it's inverted in a way yes. that is so common, yes. that is so common type of inversion throughout the biblical narrative yes. in the, Jesus. The king, the anointed chosen king, yeah. the 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 one who is wearing the uh, the mantle of the god yeah. um is has become a servant yeah. and has given his life as a sacrifice for the sins of his people even though he himself is completely innocent of yeah. any crimes he takes he takes on their sin as his own and suffers and dies in their place it's just it's absolutely amazing and yeah. so the there was this expectation about the coming king is that he would have this father-son relationship with God. Mm. Um, So it's, again, I don't know whether Peter meant it 
in a deified kind of way, but he certainly meant it in a royal sort of way that sure. he means you are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. But even just that, I mean, just thinking through the the weight of that confession mm-hmm. to to say, I don't I don't know how. I don't know how this can be true because already he knew that Jesus wasn't a Messiah like they were expecting the Messiah to be. Right. Many people were expecting the Messiah to be. And and just saying that, letting those words come out of your mouth was a dangerous thing. I mean, again, the I think it's the Bible Project guys talked about how uh, if you if you had someone who was walking around the United States claiming to be the president, like you would think, okay, well you're you're crazy. But if if people started to say, actually, you are the the rightful president, you or now we've got even more like you are the king, like you're the king of America, you know, like I mean, so so now you're putting yourself. Not, I mean, it's one thing to kind of hang out with them, but for you to say, yes, this is the Christ. This is the son of the living God. This is the one we've been waiting for. All of our hopes, all of our expectations, all of our faith, all of our trust, all of our loyalty, all of our allegiance, it all belongs to him. So this is really a pledge of allegiance Mm -hmm. to say, you are my king. I'm surrendering to you. I'm going to follow you. You're the one I've been waiting for. This is this is huge. That this moment cannot be overstated. So so he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, you know, there's different opinions about that. And he said, no, no, who do you say that I am? Yeah. And then Peter says this, and he's the first one to speak up. And Peter gets a bad rap a lot because, you know, so many times he sticks his foot in his mouth and he says things he ought not to say, but he's also is the first to say what needs to be said. And it could be that that others were thinking the same truth and that that truth had been revealed to them by God as well, but they weren't ready to say it. And Peter is ready to say it. Uh, so Jesus says, verse 17, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. So in other words, nobody told you that. God showed you that. This is, this is the truth. You know, sometimes we talk about truth and we there's like truth that's like truth with a small t and truth truth with a big t that there is the truth and this is the truth and the truth is not self-evident this is a, a not self-evident truth paul would put it in terms in first corinthians that you have to have the spirit you have to have this truth revealed to you by god and so this isn't just something that somebody figured out or you know whatever like this is something that god god has uh, earlier i talked about sort of putting the pieces together and and putting together the clues but it wasn't by peter's effort that this happened it was god who showed him this and do you remember this and do you remember this and brought these things to his attention opened his heart opened his mind to this reality so that he could process and accept this this truth that his the eyes of his heart had been enlightened that that the truth the light was beginning to to shine into his heart and Jesus always gives credit to God this is a work of God mm-hmm. that this truth has dawned on you that you have realized this truth and that God has has shown you this mm-hmm. Um, okay, so then he says in verse 18, and I, I'd like you to read, if you've got that, Matthew 16 and verse 18. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Okay, so it says it in the text, yeah. which means rock. Okay, yeah. interesting. Is it like parenthetical? Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Hmm. Okay, so so yeah, so again, the New Living Translation, I assume that's what you're reading from, yep. um, explains that the name Peter means rock, mm-hmm. uh, Petros. Uh, so, and I tell you that you are Petros, and on this Petra, this rock, I will build my church. Now again, <laughs> when we think church, don't think building. When you think church, think assembly. Mm-hmm. Think gathered together people. So he says, I'm going to build an assembly of people, but there is a building metaphor here. So he is talking about people, but he's also talking about using people 
as building blocks. And he says, we're going to start with that. Your confession, yeah. your your faith, your declaration of allegiance and loyalty that you've pledged your allegiance, you've confessed, God has shown me. God has shown me that you are his son. You are the Christ. You're the anointed king. You're the one we've been waiting for. We give you, I give you my loyalty and allegiance. And so Jesus seems to be saying something like, you're not the last one. <laughs> you may be the first one, but you're not the last one. And yeah. so I'm going to gather together my people that are going to be gathered together. There's a lot of, you know, tradition that goes around this passage. And mm-hmm. the Catholic Church uses this as proof of Peter being the first apostle. Um, you know, is he talking about Peter being the rock? Is he talking about, well, I mean, it's not really, that's really insignificant in my mind. What's really important is he's saying, I'm going to gather together a lot of people and they're all going to be stones in this living temple, this temple that I'm putting together, this building that I'm putting together, this assembly that I'm putting together, this gathering of people that I'm putting together. It's going to be built upon what you've just confessed, what you've just confessed that my identity is the son of God, which again, may have even been more true than even Peter realized that it was. He knew that it was true, but there was probably depth to it that he hadn't yet plumbed. He hadn't yet seen all of the depth of, of that reality. And, and, but on that reality, on that big T truth, mm-hmm. God, the, the church, the assembly of, of the Lord was going to be gathered and, and, and then he says the gates of, and it's interesting that my translation, your translation, most translations uh, translate this as hell, um, but the word really is Hades. It's not Gehenna. Mm-hmm. Gehenna is the the pit, the the valley of death and destruction and worms and you know that kind of thing. But but Hades is the realm of the dead. It's the the place of death. Mm -hmm. So I think really what he's saying is that the power of death will not prevail against the building of and the prevailing of my people. It will not prevail against the building of my gathered people, my church. It is going to be based on this truth and this reality and death itself will not stop us. Death itself will not stop us the church are you the one that told me that that where they think they were when he's having this discussion is at a place that was called the gates of hades as well no but i i mean i i've heard that where i think that they're they're at caesarea philippi yes um yeah. i'm not sure about that that um, just popped into my head as you oh, were that's saying interesting it's it, it is interesting that you, you bring up the the gates of hell or is the nlt says the powers of hell and it really being more hades that yes. um I was thinking the because we get that confused a lot with yeah. Greek mythology that had now, you know, because they're speaking Greek, mm-hmm. the Jews all speak Greek for the or most part. At least part writing of, in Greek. We don't know. They Greek. may have been speaking Aramaic, right? But, yeah. But they're using the term Hades. It would have just been that spiritual realm that you pass into after, right? After your right, your, the place your body. of disembodied spirits. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. Tartaros, the the actual pocket in Hades that was meant for the evil. Ones that would have been closer to hell. And yeah, this is, so Taurus is like this. Yeah. Like the, the the ones we see there are like the evil right. angels that are being you know held Bound in, in and chains. Held. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but Hades itself, really, you know, again in the in the Jewish mindset, it's hard to know exactly what you know the the Jewish people thought of the Hebrew word was Sheol, mm-hmm. um, but most of the things that the the Hebrew scriptures say about Sheol, which would be translated with the Greek word Hades uh, in like the Septuagint, was that Sheol was a place of just being dead. Like it's a place of, uh, you know, again, Greek mythology had all kinds of ideas about what's happening in the underworld. Uh, But for the most part, the the Jewish perspective was that Sheol was a place of death, like just not knowing, not praising, not saying, not doing. It's it's a place of sleep. Um, And so um, now again, there's all kinds of debates about, you know, what's life like when you die or what's, sure. you know, your existence like when you die. But that's not Paul, Peter, sorry, that's not <laughs> Jesus' point here. Jesus' point here seems to be that the powers of death, 
specifically his death, but even the death of his people yeah. is not going to stop them, that nothing can stop the, the, the church. But I think that's something that you've challenged me on in talking about death as a concept is mm. that, and that, and is that I think Christianity and, and, and religion as a whole has sort of drifted into this place of this kind of bifurcated view of the afterlife. Like mm. it's, it's heaven or hell. Mm-hmm. And it's like, those are obviously places that are very significant in the biblical text. But one thing that jumped out at me as he's talking about this is it's, it's, he's talking about death. Like death right. is offensive enough yes, on yes, its own. Yes. And that's something you've really challenged me on that. Sometimes I think we, I know I've taken for granted the fact that, well, as a Christian, I don't have to, you know, I have comfort when I lose somebody. Mm-hmm. doesn't make it easy, mm-hmm. but it makes it a lot more positive to think mm-hmm. they're, they're with, you know, Jesus has got them now. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to fear death in the same way, but, but it is, it is offensive. Mm-hmm. It is a, it is a sign of this broken world. So this. And I, prior it, to Jesus, to that point, mm-hmm. prior to Jesus, there was no proof right. that there was life after death. Yeah. There, in fact, there was an entire segment of the Jewish leadership that did not believe in yeah, said, any yeah. life after death. Like they, they, it was just this, like this is it. There's that power, the there's authority. Right, the Sadducees. Yeah. And so the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees believed, believed against belief based on the scriptures that said, you know, listen, God still has some promises that yeah. he needs to keep. And if he's going to keep those, and we know he is because he's a God who keeps promises, the only way he can keep his promises to us, his people, is to raise people from the dead because there's been plenty of faithful people who have died not receiving the promises that they were they were given. Right. So he he has to raise them from the dead. It was the same sort of thinking that that Abraham had when he got to the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. Mm-hmm. And he thought, listen... God is going to keep his promises through Isaac. And if Isaac dies right now, the only way to keep those promises is to raise him from the dead. So I guess God's going to raise him from the dead. Yeah. And that was the same thinking that the Pharisees seemed to have is that God's going to keep his promises. And the only right. way to do that is to raise people from the dead eventually. But Jesus is the one who proves yeah. that that theory is true. That's what makes this such a radical statement. Yes, because yeah. he says... Death is not going to stop this from coming to pass. It's not going to stop this from being established and from prevailing all of the promises. Again, there's so much packed into this. Psalm 2 is packed into this. Abraham is packed into this. Isaac is packed into this. The entire story of Israel is packed into what is going on right now. Peter is saying to Jesus, you're the one. You're the one that's going to bring all of these promises. And Jesus says, Yes, and I'm going to gather together a multitude of people upon this rock, and the gates of death will not stop this from coming to pass. Mm-hmm. And and so Jesus is claiming that he is stronger than death, that he is going to overcome death, and that he is going to break the bonds of death. And it's exactly what he does in the resurrection, and it's exactly the hope that we have. So before we have to take a break, let's um, you want to read verse 19 for us? Because this is really the question that was asked. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Okay. So my mine's a little different there. Yeah, it is a little different. And so, so my translation says, whatever you bind on earth will be mm. bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. But it's the same sort of concept. What's a little bit different, though, is I don't know if you have a footnote that says something like this, but most Bibles have a footnote that says something like, or shall have been bound, mm. or shall have been loosed. So if we read it that way, it says something like, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth uh, shall have been loosed in heaven. <laughs> a little bit harder to read, but very different meaning. And if you read commentaries on this passage, it is very complicated, the grammar here and what exactly Jesus is saying. There's one grammatical option, which would be that Jesus is saying, hey, whatever you guys say goes, you know, if you if you say it, that that's the law, you know, at first glance, that's what I you get to dictate what heaven what heaven says. Obviously, that can't be what he means. That doesn't really make any sense. So even if we render it the, orig- the that way, I don't think even that, I don't think that's what he means by that. 
I think one way or the other, what Jesus means is what you preach on earth is a message from heaven, mm. that you are preaching mm. a message from heaven, that what you are binding and loosing, and specifically the people you are binding and loosing, specifically the people you are bringing into, because he tells Peter, he says, you're going to have the key to the kingdom, and or the keys to the kingdom, and you're going to open up the door to certain people, and you're going to close the door to certain people. I just want to take a short break from our Bible study to tell you that if you are enjoying this discussion, you might also enjoy my book, Beyond the Verse. You can find the audio version of the book at radicallychristian.com slash audible. That's radicallychristian.com slash audible. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can actually get my book for free when you sign up for a free trial. So go to radicallychristian.com slash audible. Now back to the Bible study. Okay, now that we're back from the very sudden break that we took, um, let me read from the Expositor's Bible Commentary, because I really like the way that it sort of explains what Peter is doing here, what what he's doing in confessing Jesus, and then what Jesus is doing by responding to him the way that he does. It says, Peter, on confessing Jesus as Messiah, is told that he has received this confession by the Father's revelation and will be given the keys of the kingdom, i.e., by proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, chapter 4 and verse 23, which by revelation he is increasingly understanding, he will open the kingdom to many and shut it against many. So that's what keys do, right? Keys open things and close things, and that by proclaiming this truth, this reality about Jesus, the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that he is God's chosen one, that he is, uh, that he is the Son of God, that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he is ruling over his kingdom and that his kingdom will not be uh, prevailed against by the gates of, of death. Uh, by proclaiming this, by living this out, he is going to be opening the kingdom of God to many and closing it to many. Uh, so Jesus is saying, I believe, that what you're binding has been bound in heaven mm -hmm. and what you are loosing, it has been loosed in heaven. So you are proclaiming this message that that has been established in heaven and you are you are partnering. I think that's the beautiful part of this is that Jesus is, I think a good word is deputizing. He is deputizing his apostles, starting with Peter, but also will deputize all of his apostles to bind and loose what has been bound and loosed in heaven by preaching the gospel. And by preaching the gospel, he they are opening the kingdom to many and closing it to many. It's actually incredibly relevant as we talk sometimes about is is the church, is the kingdom of God, is it inclusive or exclusive? And the truth is, yes, it's, it's both. It's incredibly inclusive. In fact, it's probably the most inclusive major world religion. Yeah. Um, it is definitely the most multi-ethnic world religion because it is not about ethnicity. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter the language you speak. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. It is open to everyone. But is it exclusive in the sense that there are rules and regulations? There are, uh, there's sort of a, um, a, a way that you have to be transformed and change. You have to repent of living a certain way and, right. and begin to be transformed, not only in your thinking, but also in your living. And if you don't conform, I hate using the word conform, um, but if you don't conform to the standard, if you don't, uh, if you don't acquiesce to the standard that Jesus has set for us, then the, the kingdom is bound against you. The, the doors are closed against you. So it is incredibly inclusive, and it's also incredibly exclusive. It is exclusive specifically to the people who say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you are willing to confess, and not just confess with your mouth, but live out that reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then the kingdom is open to you. 
If you are not willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and give him your loyalty and allegiance, then the kingdom is closed to you. Mm -hmm. And the apostles, in their apostolic ministry, that's exactly what they're doing. They're opening the kingdom of God to people and closing it to people. So there are there are Jewish people, there are Jewish people who have lived their whole life thinking that they are and that they would be a part of God's kingdom, a part of God's eternal kingdom, a part of the Messiah's kingdom. But they refused to bow their knee to King Jesus. They refused to, to give him their loyalty and allegiance. And so the kingdom of God is closed to them. But to people like prostitutes and tax collectors who were willing to confess Jesus as the Messiah, the kingdom of God is open to them. Shockingly so, that that you've got these people that everyone would have thought were on the outside of the kingdom, they would never were going to get in the kingdom, and Jesus would tell the Pharisees, hey, the prostitutes, tax collectors are going to get in before you. In fact, many of you aren't even going to be part of the kingdom at all. So... I'm going to go down a bit, little bit of a rabbit hole. Okay, but I it's been the it op- episode for that. That's okay. <laughs> so as we keep reading this passage out of Matthew 16, I keep thinking of this thing I heard about several years ago. And I'm not taking credit for it. I did not make this revelation. <laughs> but um, do you know, the? have you heard anybody talk about the Christ comparison of the story of Pinocchio? <laughs> no, I don't think so. So it starts with, you know, this this uh, Geppetto, the cobbler, having a son, right? right? I think he's a cobbler. That's right. Uh, and he he looks up, he goes to the North Star, you know, to make mm-hmm. this wish, right? But the as the story moves along, the, Pinocchio has to save his father, Geppetto, from the belly of a whale. Mm-hmm. And the animators, when they, in, in the Disney telling of Pinocchio, that you know, very, very old movie now, when he goes into the whale to find his father, it's not just his father there, it's his whole father's house hmm. is in there. But the house isn't just set up, it's like there's a piano on top of the couch, and I'd have to go back and watch the movie to remember the setup, but the, all the furniture is scattered. Yeah. So he has to go save his father from the belly of the whale with the items in his house as well. And I heard somebody make this comparison that it's, I mean, it's upon further investigation of what the writers were doing, they were taking the story of Christ and extracting Hmm. something out of it that I had never heard anybody talk about before, which is the whole idea of Christ coming down from heaven, the son of God, Pinocchio, (laughs) coming down to redeem what of his fathers has been scattered on earth Hmm. and has been locked away from where it's supposed to be. And so when I keep thinking about this, this idea he says, Peter, you know, on, based on the, your confession, based on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And you mentioned, you know, that we're all supposed to be the what the church is made up of, rocks in this foundation of the church, making up the church. And so this this opening that Jesus is is pronouncing based on Peter's confession, and now he's giving authority to now go gather my rocks. Go gather my people mm-hmm. where you're going to start building mm-hmm. this church soon. I never really thought about it until we're reading this. And I thought again of that Pinocchio comparison that the way between, you know, we, we talk sometimes about the veil of the curtain being torn and, mm-hmm. and the, 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 how that was, you know, symbolic of the Holy of Holies mm-hmm. separating everybody but the high priest mm-hmm. from having communion with God in that intimate way. That what Jesus was doing here on earth was coming down and redeeming what of the fathers had been scattered mm-hmm. and been lost. Yeah, yeah. And he was opening up a way back. Mm-hmm. And the way back is the confession that Peter made. Mm-hmm. That Peter made it, but then anybody else who makes that confession, you get to be a rock in this church. Yeah. I, again, I just... It, yeah, that's there's so many metaphors. I, I yeah. My mind is going way crazy going down the metaphor, <laughs> down the rabbit hole of the of Pinocchio, and I'm thinking, wait, he lied? And, no, no, no. Okay, so yeah, I don't want to go too far down <laughs> Not that. the middle but, part of the movie. Yeah, okay, so... Uh, but but there are so many metaphors here, and I, and and it's interesting how Jesus... We've talked about sort of the, the kingdom parables that Jesus has used that when we talk about the kingdom, what we're talking about is God's rule and reign, Mm. that there is chaos in the world, that the world has become chaotic and Mm. filled with sin and death and brokenness because God 
has been rejected as king. God's rule and reign has been rejected by humanity, and we chose to live under the rule and reign of sin, under the rule and reign of the evil one, rather than the rule and reign of our creator. And that has caused brokenness and chaos and death. And so one of the metaphors is like sheep, and Jesus is a shepherd, and he's gathering his sheep. Here's another metaphor of building something, of building the people into an assembly upon a foundation. And all of it is around Jesus. His, His identity is the is the foundation it is the the true north it is the the cornerstone it is what the entire kingdom is oriented around and that's where it begins that when our eyes are open to this reality when our hearts begin to be open to this reality that Jesus is the Christ that's why mm-hmm. you know like Paul will say in in Romans 10 that if you believe with your heart you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord Everything begins there. That's not to diminish things like baptism, because of course that's necessary and and important. And that it's at baptism that we declare that we um, that we have that watershed moment where we go from our lives being chaos to being reordered in Christ. But n- baptism getting wet means nothing unless you're reorienting your heart, your mind, your life around Jesus. And that's what Peter is saying. Is saying. You're the one yeah. that I'm going to reorient my life around. It's very similar to what, what Peter says uh, when Jesus asks if they want to leave. He, he's talking about people eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And, and he asks, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter says, where else would we go? You yeah. have the words of eternal life. So Peter is beginning to have this revelation. Yes, because he's putting the pieces together. But yes, also because God is at work in his heart and mind to help him to see the big T truth. And when he sees that big T truth, he confesses it and begins to order his life around it. And then everyone who comes to Jesus is confessing that. That's what we all have in common. We all have that confession in common. We all have our baptism in common. We all have this faith in common. There's a lot of things that are different. We there's a, we are dissimilar in so many ways from our brothers and sisters, but this reality that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is what we all have in common. And as the apostles go into the world and proclaim this message, there are those who believe it and that their eyes are open to it, their heart is open to it, they reorient their lives around to it, and then the apostles, and then later the church, opens the kingdom to them so that they can come in. And what Jesus is saying is, you're you're loosing what is loosed in heaven, and what is loosed in heaven is loosed on earth, that there's this partnership between heaven, God, and the 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 forces of God, the the hosts of heaven, and the people on earth, Jesus' people that are cooperating with and partnering with and have been deputized by the Messiah, that he is partnering with his apostles on earth. He's partnering with his, his people, his assembly, his church on earth, so that when they are preaching and teaching this good news message, this big T truth, that what they're binding and loosing is being bound and loosed in heaven or has already been bound or loosed in heaven. It really doesn't matter how you how you phrase it grammatically. He's saying there's this partnership between the church on earth and the hosts in heaven, the Messiah in heaven, the Father in heaven, and that they're working together to open the kingdom to certain people who confess Jesus as Christ and close the kingdom to those who will not confess Jesus as Christ. That's what this whole conversation revolves around, is the confession that Peter makes. Now, before we lose too much more time, uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 18, because this is the second time that this phrase is used. It's a little bit different context. It's actually quite a bit different context, but I think a very similar meaning. Uh, So Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. You want to read it out of your your crazy translation (laughs) over there? No. Matthew 18, 15? Yes. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. 
then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Okay. So so here we have even further discussion, a very similar idea, right? It It's still about opening and closing. It's still about who's in and who's out. Mm-hmm. And, and in this case, we have this sinning against each other, people that have offended each other, people who have hurt each other, because this is still going to happen. Unfortunately, this is still going to happen amongst believers. And he says, if your brother sins against you, here's how you handle it. You go to them, you talk to them. If you talk to them and you reconcile and you work it out and you can live in unity, great. You've won your brother. Exciting. Wonderful. That's the way it should happen. But if they don't listen to you, take somebody with you, take some witnesses with you and and try to resolve this. But if he refuses even to listen to that small group, then tell it to the assembly, to the gathering, the gathered people, to the church. And if he refuses even listen to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So again, binding and loosing. So it's not just a person who confesses Jesus as Lord. It is that. It begins with that. But it's also people who live in unity and harmony with their brothers and sisters. And if you hurt each other and you sin against each other and you refuse to repent, you're out. You're out. That You can't be part of this kingdom and say, I don't care. I don't care about your feelings. I don't care about your rights. I don't care how you're treated. I'm going to do what I want to do. If you are going to live that way, then we're going to treat you like a tax collector and a Gentile. In other words, someone who's on the outside of the kingdom. The doors to the kingdom are shut to you so long as you don't confess Jesus as Lord and so long as you don't live in harmony with your brothers and sisters. I mean, really, we've said this so many times on this podcast, but the whole the whole of Scripture, the whole of Scripture comes down to this, Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you? Justice kindness, walk humbly with your God. Jesus says, okay, I'm going to sum up the whole law and prophets. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. Peter says that, the, the or rather Paul says that uh, the whole the whole law of Christ is, is fulfilled in bearing one another's burdens. It all comes down to this. Confess, in, in the gospel of John, in the gospel of John, Jesus gives two commandments. Believe in him, love one another as I love you. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like it comes down to those two, the, the Ten Commandments can be organized that way. You know, the the first column of the, the Ten Commandments and the second column, the loving the Lord your God, loving your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And so the, the kingdom is open to everyone who confesses Jesus as Lord and who will not sin against one another and who will live in harmony, in unity with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that that includes a lot of things, and we could spend a lot of time unpacking that. But this is it. If you if you sin against your brother or sister, repent. And if they repent, forgive them. Keep forgiving them. But if they refuse to repent, then close the doors to the kingdom to them. Um, read, if you would, verse eighteen, because this is where we, we get that phrase again. I tell you the truth: whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Okay, so again, if you just read that at face value or sort of take it out of context, it sounds like, well, you set the rules. Whatever the church decides, I guess heaven's going to go along with it. I don't think that's at all what Paul, or what, I keep saying Paul, uh, I don't think that's at all what Jesus means to communicate to his apostles. And again, it could be translated, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. But again, he's saying there's this partnership between the church on earth and God, the Father and the Son in heaven, and that we are cooperating with one another and that the verdict that you pass, that when you say you're out because you won't confess Jesus as Lord or you're out because you won't repent of sinning against your brother or sister, you've sinned and you've been told and warned and disciplined and you still won't repent and you're out, when the church passes that verdict, heaven is passing that verdict. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where there are where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Again, we 
tend to pull that out of context and make it sound like, well, we're having a little devotional here, so Jesus is with us. And I mean, that's true, I, I think, right. but that's not what Jesus means. He's talking about two or three witnesses specifically. He's talking about when you've gathered together and you've warned a brother or sister to stop sinning and they won't, and they continue to persist in sin and they won't repent and you pass judgment on them. You bring down a verdict against them and say, you are guilty and you're living as a tax collector. You're living as a Gentile. You're living as someone who doesn't know God and you pass that verdict. It's not just you that's passing that verdict. It's me, Jesus is saying, in heaven, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I'm passing the verdict with you. Heaven is passing the verdict with you. And that's huge. That's saying, I mean, there's so many things this is saying, but it's almost like you could think the Sanhedrin, that's where the power, you you would have thought that's where the power was. The power was, if you thought, okay, well, where is the Jewish God's power? Well, it lies with the, the religious leaders in this Sanhedrin and where these elders pass a verdict or pass a law, then they're speaking for heaven. And Jesus says, actually, it's anywhere my disciples are gathered and they are preaching the gospel. They're teaching the gospel. They're they're binding what has been bound in heaven. They're loosing what has been loosed in heaven. Anywhere where my disciples are binding and loosing what has been bound and loosed in heaven, they're speaking for heaven. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible yeah. that that Jesus has deputized, partnered together with. I think there's obviously first layer application to the apostolic ministry, the the apostles ministry, but I think there's also there's also this ongoing reality that Jesus is with us and we need to not be afraid to, you know, to use a restoration phrase, speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible's silent. It's the same sort of idea, but but it would be more accurate to say, speak where heaven speaks and be silent where heaven is silent. And when you speak where heaven speaks, when you are speaking the oracles of God, when you're speaking big T truth and you're saying Jesus is the Christ. And if someone won't confess that, then they're not your family. They're not your brother. They're not your sister. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you hurt people. It doesn't mean you mistreat people, but it does mean we have to recognize that we are the pillar and the support of the truth as the church. We are God's people and we have this obligation and responsibility to speak the truth of heaven and to continue on this ministry of, of opening the kingdom of God to those who are repentant and have faith in Jesus and closing the kingdom of God to those who are unrepentant and don't have faith in Jesus. Thank you so much for being part of the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I want to give a special thanks to Travis Polly and to our McDermott Road Church family for making this podcast possible. As always, we love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.